Welcome to Sake Deep Dive. This is the Sake Podcast for the Beyond Beginner. I'm your host, Jim Ryan, Sake translator, author, and uh, man about town. Joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Andrew Russell. How are you doing today, Andy? Good, Jim. Raring for another episode, as usual. Yes, and uh, I hope I hope the, the, the summer isn't too boiling for you yet up there in uh, Hyogo Prefecture. It's a furnace is the best way to describe <laughs> it. No, it's extremely warm. It's going to be uh, a tough summer, but I think that's uh, that's certainly seems to be the case in other parts of the world as well. Right. Yeah. Things are uh, things are hard all over. It looks like I keep thinking about those those sake breweries that you work in, and I know that it gets bitter, bitter cold in the winter. But I just want I, I doubt they have air conditioning at most of them these days. So I, I assume that. Uh, it must be better to work in the winter than in the summer, but maybe that's just my uh, hatred of the heat talking. Yeah, I'm not good in the heat either. And of course, in winter, you we all moan a lot because we're freezing cold and we're working with water, which is not very. That's not a very pleasant combination. But yeah. of course, working in sake breweries in the summer comes with its own unique set of challenges and. If I had to pick one, I would say the winter is probably slightly easier to live with. They're hot, stuffy. There's a lot of bugs. That goes without saying there's all variety of bugs everywhere in Japan. And out of those, you know, the worst has to be mosquitoes. They are just yeah. the bane of people that work in a brewery's existence. Yeah, I'm not good with summer. All right. Well, uh, I guess... Maybe that's probably a, a decent enough segue to our, our topic today because you know we're we're talking about you up there in Hyogo Prefecture, and uh, and and our topic is basically your neighborhood, isn't it? It is. It's the region that I work. It's the biggest sake region in the world. Full stop. It has been for what two hundred and fifty odd years, so it has to be the one and only. Nada. Nada. The Nada Gogo, the five villages of Nada, where perhaps most famous sake breweries in Japan are. I, I don't know about the world. Like, I don't know how much sort of global exposure uh, anybody but uh, uh, Hakutsuru, I guess, has outside of Japan. But um, yeah, definitely. Just a just a behemoth in the sake brewing industry, and and we're gonna we're gonna talk about it today. I I think if if you've listened to our Miyamizu episode or our Kimoto episode, you're gonna have a pretty solid idea of the history, sort of the the origins of of this this sort of not a region. But today, I think we're gonna bring it up a little bit more modern. Yeah, we're gonna obviously it, it, we won't be able to get there without just a little bit of historical perspective. But I think it, it's going to be interesting to look and see what nada means to sake brewing today. Quickly to point out, actually, that the next three episodes we're going to cover what they call the Nihon Sandai Sake Tokoro. These are the the so-called three big regions uh, in sake brewing in Japan. They are nada, of course. The other one is Fushimi and then Saijo in Hiroshima. We do need to explain what exactly Nada is, because it's very hard to actually talk about its history up to the modern day without talking about enormous change that the boundaries of Nada has gone through over the years. So the, the first thing is the name. The, the name Nadame, it comes from a mispronunciation of Nada Bay. And that in Japanese would translate as near the sea. So Nada Bay would become Nada May. And then at some point that just got shortened to Nada. The, the Nada Gogo is actually a relatively recent thing. It didn't start off as five villages. It just started off as two regions. They were Lower Nada and Upper Nada. Lower Nada is around modern day Sanomiya. And then the Upper Nada is what we now call uh, Western, Central and Eastern. So originally that was it. That was the boundaries of Nada. But then later in 1828, they added a third region, quite unusually far away from where 
upper and lower Nada are, there's a big gap in between. And that's the region of Imazu, which is now in Nishinomiya. And then eventually there was the split upper region of Nada into three separate regions. And this is still a very big chunk of the Nada Gogo today. That's again, Western, Central and Eastern. And then finally in 1886, the lower region of Nada, this is this is why you, you'd be thinking there's no breweries around Sanomiya today, that got completely removed and it was replaced with Nishinomiya and this is this is still the current boundaries for Nada. So you have Western, Central, Eastern and then you have Nishinomiya and then you have Imazu and that is the, the, the current Nada Gogo or contemporary Nada Gogo. So that's that's where it is. And, you know, just to sort of briefly recap, this place sort of reached its ascendance during the Edo period um, for a variety of reasons. And uh, a big part of that is is just basic geography, right? Of course, that's, <laughs> we have to sort of uh, be careful so that we don't sort of tiptoe into terroir territory. But there's just a lot of elements that go into making this a place where sake brewing uh, happened to uh, to take take hold and and do very well, right? So I think the first one is water, but maybe not necessarily the water that we're thinking of, right? Yeah. Uh, we we have first of all the sea, it, as the name as Andy mentioned, the name Nada came from this idea that it's near the sea and and you know being near the sea put uh one particular advantage within reach and that was uh basically shipping right it, it, it's a good place to not only ship out sake that you made but also to get rice that has been shipped from elsewhere so you know two great big advantages there another uh is the rivers Right, Andy. I think you know this is something that we, we, you've talked about before. Uh, I think uh, probably in the uh, the Kimoto episode, right? The the sui shot, right? Or maybe it was the rice polishing episode. Oh, yeah. Of course, it was the rice polishing episode because that's what the sui, sui shot were doing. The, the 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 rice polishing is done by uh, water wheels. Water wheels. That's the the word I was looking for. <laughs> sui shot or water wheels. And so, you know, it's not necessarily an automated process, but it mechanized part of that, that sake brewing process. And uh, this region has lots of nice flowing rivers that can power all of the water wheels you need to polish your rice. It's interesting you mentioned the swear word terroir. <laughs> I actually love talking about nada in that context. Contemporary nada, they're very keen to try and establish the region as, as a, as a bioregion. And they, they talk about things like Miyamizu and rice and, and of, of course, Rocco Oroshi. This is a very famous thing, not just in the sake industry, but you hear residents of Nada talking about this is the, the cold mountain breeze that sweeps down off the, the Rocco uh, mountain range, which really is very close. Nada is sandwiched between the Rocco mountain range and, and the sea. And brewers in the past were very clever at utilizing that. You had a, a concept called Kasanigura, and the architecture of these breweries was designed in a way that it would make the most out of that Rocco Roshi. And they would actually have big open windows that would, that would be facing the Rocco mountain range. And what they would do is they would open them up when they were brewing and that would cool the rice. So there was a number of advantages to it. And if you look at it, in the past, if you look at all those things, then Nara is a very strong case of, of being a, a bioregion. But if, if you look at that list nowadays, it's very hard to argue that Nara is, is a bioregion because it, it doesn't utilize very many of the things on that list. For example, Suisha, the, the water wheels, they're obviously long gone. Rice polishing is done now by heavy machinery. Some of it is done, of course, in Nara, but a lot of it will be done off premises. That is not an exclusive thing that the breweries in Nara all have their own rice polishing facilities, although certainly the, the, the big guns tend to. Miyamizu, they still, believe it or not, move Miyamizu around, but it was never a very compelling argument for 
something like terroir because it only comes from one place. From what I know in the breweries that I've seen, they are actually still just bringing it in from Nishinomiya, parts of Nishinomiya anyway, where the original well was. And close to that, there are each individual brewery's wells still there, and they've actually got their, their name, their company names on. And what they do is they fill up tankers and take them over every, every morning for, for brewing. It's an incredibly laborious, time-consuming job, but that's the importance of Miyamizu. Kasanigura, of course, is no longer. The vast majority of breweries in Nada are brewing all year round and their facilities are air conditioned. So there's no usage of Kasanigura anymore in Nada. And the other one, which is the, the final one, I suppose, is, is rice. There's a strange, I guess you call it a myth that there's, there's rice in Nada. People talk about the breweries utilizing the great local rice. Just to clear one thing up, there is no rice in Nada. I mean, even in some really built up cities in Japan, you'll see the odd, very small rice field. I'm sure you've seen them before in, uh, in places down in Yamaguchi. They'll be sandwiched between big buildings. I don't think I've seen that at all in Nada. It was a port town. It was next to the sea. So what that meant was it was ideal for as a collection point for rice from other parts of Japan. And the other parts of Japan nowadays that they refer to modern Nada is quite far away. It is not in Nada. It's way, it's way west of Nada in places like Miki and Toko and, you know, that, that kind of region. You're into the Harima region. So Yamada Nishiki and what have you and the local rice. They mean it in the, the sense that it's local, it's from Hyogo, but it isn't from Nada. So I, I genuinely think that, you know, when you're talking about uh, th these kind of bioregion arguments and stuff like that, it's got to be something that is going to appeal to people who've never actually been to or seen the region because it's a city. Like it's a very, very urban area, like, you know, towering buildings and expressways and, and buses and trams and, and like, you know, and I even have, I, I have to wonder about that, that Mia Mises thing. Like I get that they're, they're, they're tanking it in every morning, but how productive can those wells be if they're, if, if, if all of these breweries are actually use getting all of the water from the same area every day. To be honest, the, the Miyamizu thing, I, I was quite surprised at the, the still the level of usage of Miyamizu. I, I was a little cynical until I actually saw it for myself and you see the trucks coming in. And of course, where I'm working, that was literally a, a part of the, the, the day would the truck would come with Miyamizu. And of course, I've visited Nishinomiya several times and the, the wells are there, they exist, they have the, the things up. So it is, it is an incredible commitment to Miyamizu, but not everyone is using Miyamizu in Nada. Where, where I was in particular in Uozaki, you've got some fairly big brands, you know, Kiku Masamuni, Sakura Masamuni, which is the this is the discoverer of Miyamizu. Of course, they're going to use it and they're going to mm -hmm. heavily use it in their branding. And Kembishi uses Miyamizu as well. Outside of that, I'm not sure. I, I guess they will, but I'm pretty sure it won't be for 100%. Right. So, yeah, this is, I think, the, the sort of the... We, we've got now the, the geographical definition of Nada and I guess the sort of the ideological definition of Nada with this uh, kind of these elements that that have made it what it was. And of course that transportation, I didn't, we, we didn't really get into Kudarizake, but uh, you know, I think most people are going to be aware that not as success was built on selling sake in the capital uh, Edo in the beginning and Tokyo later. Right. Uh, the idea of Kudarizake is sake that, that made its way down from the uh, Kamigata region, the, the area sort of nearer to Kyoto and to, for some reason, they call it down to Tokyo. Yeah, the, the down to Tokyo actually is very logical. There, there's a perception that the, the, during the Edo period, the so-called Edo period, that Edo was the capital, but it, it wasn't. Kyoto was the capital up until the Meiji period. 
And the reason for that is the emperor moved from Kyoto to what became Tokyo after the Meiji Restoration began. So once the Tokugawa shogunate was toppled, then they decided to relocate the emperor. But the capital is where the emperor resides. So if if you're thinking it from that sense, even in the Edo period, the, the sake is, is coming down from the capital. Everything comes down from where the emperor is. So it's kudaru, the verb to um, to go down. So the, the kudari zake thing is quite confusing now because when you think of the Shinkansen, they, they have the, you know, the nobori densha. All ah, right, nobori, yeah, it goes up to, to, to yeah. Yeah, it, it starts now in Tokyo, but that wasn't the case before. Right. We have to bear in mind, Nara was not really the original big brewing region. It was Itami. Nara, it's more towards the mid to the, to the late Edo period. And then the, the success of it has kind of ebbed and flowed. But as you said before, when we talk about it being this Kudarizaki, where it really made its name, it's the mid Edo periods. It's way before things like Miyamizu. So there was yeah. a lot more going on in Nada than just this Miyamizu. Really, it's got much more to do with the transportation and the fact that the, the suisha existed. The, the suisha thing has been, it's now nil and void really because of modern rice polishing. But the transportation thing is interesting because although it was very advantageous that they were getting, Saki was getting moved to Edo by ship. And then we think of the other two of these big Saki regions, Fushimi and then later Saijo, they took advantage of of the railway systems that got laid during the Meiji period. But Nada was able to also take advantage of that as well. So that's why you don't see a, a big drop off in, in sales or prestige from that region, like something like Itami or Ikeda, because Nada was able to ride the storm, so to speak. They, they had this brilliant access to, to the waterways, which Itami didn't that really kind of lowered their uh, their prestige and their sales because sake became very expensive to move but nada was right right there it's been in that transportation hub the whole time and it's really been able to to survive and to thrive throughout the years because of that so transportation for me would be the the number one reason why it's uh, it's endured for so long it has just been i think it, it leveraged rooted reputation historically and then you know, was able to take advantage of changing to tr sort of, I guess, technological and transport advances in a very clever and uh, use, I guess, successful way. And, um, you know, w as we sort of t get into that more modern period, you know, as you said, we're not going to be able to, to cover everything that's happened. Uh, but I, I think it probably is a good idea to skip ahead a little bit, to to, to give a, a modern grounding in some of the big changes that have really, really hit that that region and, and had a, a direct impact uh, on sake brewing and I guess sort of Japan as a whole. Because if we want to understand uh, the modern place that Nada has in the sake brewing industry, we really need to understand... Um, how people's attitudes towards it have changed and how, uh, I guess, Japan's cultural and economic changes have really put a lot of pressure on that kind of big industry, you know, and I think that probably is going to take us maybe into the seventies um, as, as Nada grew and as it became this uh, more modern center for sake brewing, some of the things that were happening after, say, World War II, played a really big part of that. You know, we had something, we, ha we had a lot of controls that the government put on rice, which directly impacted the kind of sake that was being brewed and how much sake was being brewed. And we, we've talked about Sanzoshu in the Futsushu episode. And, and uh, in that episode, I think we also mentioned some of these things called uh, okeuri, so what happened was the government was was putting caps on how much rice 
could be used to brew by any given sake brewery and how much sort of output they could make, right? It was sort of a double layered control. Breweries that were making Sanzoshu were able to get a little bit more rice, uh, which translated into a bigger end production and more profit, obviously. But you know, these these Nada breweries had a very strong established reputation. Customers knew them. Customers were buying them all over Japan, and uh, they could not keep up with production. So these breweries uh, had to basically buy sake from other breweries. And and it wasn't just an ob, they were just going shopping. Um, they would contract smaller sake breweries that didn't have that establishment, that established reputation. They didn't have these, these sort of nationwide customers and they would order sake made to order, right? They would give recipes. They would sometimes even give these smaller sake breweries facilities, right? They'd, they'd buy them bigger tanks. They'd help set them up to make the sake that would then go to Nara, be mixed in with all of the other sake they were buying from other breweries, bottled, labeled, and sold as these Nada sake brands. And uh, yeah, you hear that called oke ure. You hear that called uh, oke bai. They basically are just two sides of the same coin. You're, you're uh, selling tanks of sake or you're buying tanks of sake. Now, a curious thing about this was that it, it's kind of described as a, as a scandal, as this thing that, that really harmed the reputation of the Nada breweries. But I don't know if there was any single real point where that happened, or if it was more this idea that it's this practice that people became aware of that just kind of looked bad, right? Like it, it does, I can see how it would look bad. You're, 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 you've got this brewery that you really like, say, I don't know, Hakutsuru or, or something. And uh, you find out that the sake that they're selling you, they didn't actually make it themselves at their brewery. And I could see as a consumer, you would think, oh, geez, what? why would you do that? that that's not cool. And, um, you know, I see these articles talking about how it harmed reputations. And I, I in fact, read an article with an interview with actually the uh, the head of uh, Andy's Brewery, Kembishi, and one of the breweries that used to sell to Kembishi during the Okeyori days. And, you know, both sides had to deal with this idea of the reputation because some local consumer would come into one of these smaller rooms and say, listen, I, I hear you're selling your sake to a big Nada brewery. Who are you selling it to? And the local breweries wouldn't want to say that because that, that might reflect badly on the brewery that's supporting them and, and selling this stuff to them. And at the same time, you know, the bigger breweries were worried about how that would uh, affect their reputation with all of those consumers who were buying tons and tons and tons of the sake. And it became just a big mess, but then it just ended. Like it had to stop for the most part in 1973 when a couple of things happened. Uh, the government reduced those limits, right? It, it stopped controlling how much sake could be brewed and how much rice could be used to brew sake. And the economic situation changed dramatically with the oil shock so that uh, basically people just weren't buying as much sake anymore. The demand plummeted and the big breweries no longer had trouble filling that demand at all. So basically overnight that whole system ended. And I think, you know, from, from more details and how that impacted those smaller breweries, you could look to our Yamaguchi episode for one thing, but yeah, huge, huge, huge thing that, um, really rocked the sake brewing industry right there in 1973. Yeah, if you think about it, nowadays, the big conversation is regarding whiskey and it's where exactly was the whiskey made and what was it made from? Was it made from domestic grains or was it made from imported grains? And that has a, a huge impact on consumer perception of quality. If we look at one, the, the, the probably the most recent incident of that would be the Nika in a barrel. I mean, neither of us are particularly whiskey guys, but I believe that was quite a big deal 
it turned out that the, the just the grains maybe were coming from Scotland as opposed to being domestic grains or maybe some of the whiskey was blended in. Uh, yeah, Nika was using Nika was using scotch in a, it was blending scotch in with it. And I think they probably still do. Yeah, so there's a lot of parallels that, yeah. that we can take from that. Okiure, the the experience for the customer would be the same in this sense. If you buy something that you think is from a leading Nada brewer and then it turns out it was made in some very small brewery on the outskirts of Okayama, for example, or Yamag or even as far away as Yamaguchi or something like that. At the time, per customer's perception was that big brewery equaled quality. And where we are now is the opposite of that. What we think of now is smaller brewery equals quality. And that Okiuri scandal, whether it was big newsflash type scandal or whether it fed in quite slowly, I don't know. And I think we had a conversation about this. Neither of us can really find out an answer to how much of a scandal it was. But the bottom line is it changed the, the entire perception of consumers in Japan from thinking that these big brands were the pinnacle of quality to really affecting their reputation. And of course, that then led to the Jizaki boom. Yeah. And um, one of the interesting parts of that is, you know, I think the attitude almost became, well, you know, if these little breweries are already making all of the big stuff and selling and selling their, 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 their great sake for cheaper out in the countryside, well, why don't we go get it ourselves? It's an interesting, it's an interesting look, it's sort of, I guess, an interesting way in which consumer perception can really change quickly and have just enormous impact. Yeah, uh, beyond what you would expect. I think now though we need to get a bit more perspective on this. I, I think they need a, we need a new paradigm on places like Nada and Fushimi. Maybe that's a good segue to talk a little bit more about the reality. Then, I mean, there's still some big things that are going to happen, and we'll, we'll yeah. talk about that next. The idea that all that's being produced in Nada is really cheap, low quality stuff is a bit problematic so let's let's say go into that and look into that a bit further so yeah you can imagine that it would have been quite a tough time for brewers during this period because following directly on from the okuri scandal you have what must be considered the most significant point in nada's history certainly as a contemporary nada this is a real watershed moment for them and it would completely change the face of the region and that is of course the great Hanshin earthquake in, of 1995. For anyone that isn't aware, absolutely devastated parts of Kobe and some of the worst hit parts were round about Uozaki and Mikage. Ishinomiya obviously as well and when we when we were talking before about things like Kasanigura, these beautiful old brewery buildings, the vast majority of them are lost at this point. In fact, now if you go to the bigger guys like Kikumasamuni or in Nishinomiya, there's actually parts that survived. They're really their modern buildings that were built after the Hanshin earthquake, and they might, as a little tribute, they've reconstructed what the older buildings would have looked like. That's what you'll see the first moment you go into Kikumasamuni, for example. Bits of it were left, buildings here and there, but nothing of any significant was left. Now, not all breweries, of course, survived this as well. Some did not rebuild. And if you ever want to get a, a feeling of just how big an impact this was, my, my advice would be to walk down Uozaki, I have an old map that was printed from just before the the earthquake and the whole region was sake breweries. Now you go down and it's high rise apartments and supermarkets. And then you can sometimes just, if you, if you look closely, you can see signs that have been left where the old brewery premises would be. But the vast majority now are modern 
brewery buildings. If you can imagine how picturesque these these buildings would have been in the modern sense, it's very unlikely they would have still been using them anyway. Being perfectly honest, we will we'll never know because the that that option was obviously taken away from them uh, in the, in the devastation. Yeah, just a truly truly terrible story. Um, so much so much devastation and um you know i i it's kind of almost impressive that uh that any of the breweries were, were really able to uh to re- build back so so strongly after such a such an event and of course the buildings now they're they're built to withstand earthquakes they're not particularly pleasing on the eye because they are big concrete structures if you're mm-hmm. making the, the the quantities that breweries in Nada are expected to make, that they, they need to make, a two-store wooden brewery is just not going to cut it anymore. So what a lot of them did is they, they built up the way. But after the, the Hanshin earthquake, the, the older breweries were, were replaced by, by these big con- concrete structures that, uh, that you see today. Yeah, and and I think like yeah, as you sort of mentioned with that move towards year-round brewing, I think you know, uh, I don't want to say that they they took the opportunity, but I, I think that was also just a time when lots of other kind of changes came in. You know, I think you know, you, you, with with these new structures, you also started to see some new equipment, some new move towards uh, perhaps some automation in those breweries where. Uh, you mentioned Andy; they were in the middle of this huge slump uh, coming off of that Jizake boom. Where you know, I, I don't necessarily say want to say that you know they were they were bottoming out, but their sales had dropped dramatically from that huge peak in the in the seventies. And uh, I think maybe some of that public perception also lent just a, a sort of a a less desirability towards working at some of those breweries, right? Like they, I, I understand that they had some trouble with, with staff along the way. Well, here, here's an opportunity then that you've brought it up to, to maybe try and start changing the paradigm around NADA brewers. That, that is true. Breweries in NADA did face a staff shortage and that led to a lot more automation but this is where actually be, be careful that we don't assume that that means that smaller breweries are only making handcrafted sake, yeah, craft sake, and all they're making in Nada is machine-made cheap plonk. That is simply not true. It's been pointed out to me on a few occasions now that actually Nada was the last bastion for a number of things that we consider to be today the epitome of craft sake. And this isn't a criticism of smaller breweries, but it was smaller breweries that were far quicker to change into more modern techniques. Nada has always maintained this traditional aspect. The most visible aspect of that today is Kimoto. Just recently, a a very famous Toji pointed out to me that that Nada really, if you look back now, everyone's doing Kimoto, but up until you know the seventies, the eighties, it was only really Nada that were making, still making Kimoto, and then Daishichi in Fukushima. Maybe there was another couple of smaller breweries were were continuing to do it, but that was about it. No one else was making Kimoto, and Nada breweries still are. The, the main hub of Kimoto brewing. Kimoto is a Nada technique. It was mm-hmm. cultivated in Nada, and that's why they've they've really held on to it. So the idea that smaller breweries equals craft sake and Nada equals factory-made sake, that isn't necessarily true. Nada, these are humongous breweries. You have to remember that. They have huge product lines and not all of their sake is made by hand, but the stuff that they make by hand is probably, and this this is just me being honest, it might not please everyone, but it's probably far more 
close to the definition that people have in their mind of craft sake than a lot of the people that we associate with craft sake. The term craft sake, we'll have to get into that another night because it's a it's a big topic, but I think there, the, the term craft sake in general is problematic. And all I would say in the meantime, before we get around to doing an episode, is a brilliant book I recommend called Craft Culture in Early Modern Japan. And it deals with that issue of our misconception of the term craft, the idea that craft equals handmade. That really is quite a tricky one to to fit into sake brewing because it's definitely not all handmade, even the most craft producers they rely on on machinery but if you take a lot of the nada sake breweries and actually look at certain of their products for example kenbishi kenbishi is closer to that definition of craft than i've ever seen at any other smaller brewery i haven't visited terada honke to be fair but take terada honke out of that argument i'm not aware of any small breweries that are as close to the definition of craft sake as Kenbishi, and Kenbishi is a Nada brewer. I've heard Toji tell me, for example, at Kikumasamune, that they still use Ashifumi when they're making certain brands of Kimoto. So they're actually not using poles, they're using feet to, to do Kimoto, and that is an extremely traditional method. So we have to be careful that we don't just pigeonhole all of Nadasaki into this cheap factory-made stuff. A lot of the research and development of modern techniques and a lot of the research and development into traditional techniques starts and is maintained in the Nada region. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me how you know something like I mean, I mean, I, I guess the prime example is going to be Kenbishi. So just this, you know, massive producer of, I mean, like it's not particularly expensive sake for the most part. Right? And I mean, it's it's the stuff that you get at, at grocery stores and convenience stores, basically anywhere in Japan. But it is this product of uh, incredible attention to tradition and detail, and you know the the the, the woodworking shop that they built to to keep their wooden tata and, and tanks maintained and, and built it's like it's it's just incredible and so you know it, it is a challenge to what people want to call craft and and this idea of of you know what is it that, that people are looking for and obviously you know it's not just tradition i think particularly in 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 modern drinks culture th- there's this idea of innovation doing something new is is a big part of it and um i guess that's another aspect where nada is is really just an important innovator because you know if you if you sort of avoid all of the like what people want to call innovation these days like oh i put hops in sake i'm an innovator um you know that all of the biggest changes that come into sake are are really really deeply linked to that kind of push that nada has given to the industry right yeah, absolutely. We take so many things for granted now that came from the, the Nara region, like the resurgence of Kimoto. If, for example, if you look at, say, Bodaimoto, people think Nara, don't they? They assume Nara, and I believe you're not allowed to put Bodaimoto on the label unless you're part of the club in Nara. The, the same thing could have been done by Nara, but they didn't. And you can imagine how preposterous that sounds, but it's it's very similar situation for example nada suddenly just said no one else can use the term kimoto because it's ours certain things like like kimoto is a a very traditional aspect more contemporary ones would be things like one cup for example a lot of the development that you see in hyogo in terms of new strains of rice varieties including back in the day things like yamada nishiki these all happened because Nada brewers were were supporting them and giving the farmers a, a, a very big incentive to to go to all this effort to, to to grow these incredibly difficult strains. So these not just Nada, but these big regions that we kind of take for granted, like Nada and Fushimi and what have you, the pillars of the industry, the, the very foundations are built upon these big regions that have 
allowed their research and development to permeate into into the smaller brewers. Nara to me is is a good blend of tradition and modernity. They've kind of managed to have a good balance between them. But what the rest of the industry benefits from is the fact that they're able to do that. They have the resources, they have the funds to to not just look forward, but to look back. And if you think of the rest of the industry at that time, they were all making sokujo. I don't like this term either, but people call that low. Uh, people call that an intervention method, whereas kimoto is low intervention. So when we're talking about the idea of craft, certainly kimoto must surely be closer to that. Yeah, I, it's 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 really. I mean, a solid. Like I have to admit, you know, when I first started getting into sake, I kind of did that thing. You know, I was kind of poo pooing. Uh, the, the nada breweries and you know all, all they make is just you know mass produced cheap stuff and i felt i fell into that but um you know one of the things that actually uh changed my mind uh changed very fundamentally was i got to visit nada and i i, I got to visit some of the the places you know i went to the hakatsuda sake brewery museum which is um I mean, I'm still not a huge sake sake fan. It's just not something that I drink. But you know, it's it's really impressive the things that they've preserved and the things that they've contributed. Some of the things that I that that I really do kind of recommend. And I don't know, Andy, you 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 live and work and 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 are much deep more deeply steeped in the place than I am. But like Sawanotsuru, Sawanotsuru is a great place to visit with great sake. Very um. I think I found it much more sort of comfortable and uh, personable to visit than, you know, the, the really, really big ones. Um, Kobe Shushinkan, they make, uh, what is it? They make Fukuju. Is that their, their label? Wonderful tasting place. They, they have a, a, a little restaurant you can visit on there. I think that it's, it's definitely a place that has an unearned poor reputation because a lot of really, really great sake still comes out of all of these huge, uh, almost unbelievably <laughs> advanced sake breweries that they've got there. Well, that's maybe a good segue into the, the final part of this then, which is right. modern nada. This is the crux of it. You're starting in the West uh, and then you're making your way in towards Mikage. When I'm doing a tour of nada, I prefer to start in the East towards Nishinomiya and then work my way back towards that region. Doesn't matter how you do it. There's so much going on in that and there's so much to see that it's either a very tiring day to get around them all or it's actually probably better split into two days. It wouldn't do your liver any good because (laughs) all of these places have fantastic tasting facilities and there's even a bar now at Kembishi where you can go and try lots of different types of nada sake. Yeah, it would be kind of a, a very um, heady couple of days if you did that. It's another thing that Nada stands alone, really. It, well, maybe with Fushimi and arguably Saijo. They're it for sake tourism, aren't they? Yeah. You can't consistently go to these. And that's not their fault. I'm not having a go at the smaller breweries. This is just something that we need to remember and be thankful to these bigger, that these big companies exist, is that without them, there wouldn't be somewhere that you could rely upon to go to outside of these three big regions because the other breweries just simply don't have the staff. Whereas in Nada and Fushimi and Saijo, these big guys are they're set up to take visitors. Like you said, the in Fukuju you can go and eat in the Sakagurakan. At Kembishi you can now go to their bar. The place I like to go to is Nishinomiya. They have a uh, um, Hakushika. They have actually two. They have a two separate museums. One is dedicated to sake brewing, and the other one is it changes depending on the season. And they they do different uh, exhibitions on various aspects of the of sake brewing, as well as sakura, I believe as well. Sakura is always there, and then that gets paired with other exhibitions. So things like the, the tourism side of things, we're we're very lucky to to have these facilities because. It's very hard to ask smaller breweries to to replicate that. Yeah, I, it's definitely not 
like just sort of coming at it after seeing so many of these small local breweries in Yamaguchi, it's, it's just a, it's just a, a whole other scale, just a whole other level of uh, openness and access. Um, obviously, you know, you, you can't just go wandering around the production facilities, but they have a place where you can just experience uh, the history and the brewing of sake in a way that uh, I, I hadn't been able to before. So definitely a very impressive place. Uh, I still maybe think Saijo Saijo might have have a have a little bit one up on it, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I would, I would agree with you. But let's keep that for the Saijo episode. Sure, let's keep that for the for the Saijo episode coming soon okay. to a, a podcast player to you, near you. All right, Andy, and I think that you know what I think that's probably bringing us to the crux of the matter. I think our recommendation time is here. Sure. This was very hard for me because <laughs> I should really be recommending the brewery that I work for and I was very close to. I, I love Kembishi. I love Kuromatsu in particular. It's just a fantastic drink. But I was out drinking quite recently, actually, in Nada. And the whole way to the bar, I had it in my mind that I had to have this sake. And it's it's taught me something, actually, as, as, has, as has Kenbishi. I think I've decided on my favorite style of sake, and it's Honjozo. I really had a, an epiphany that it, I prefer drinking Honjozo than any other type of sake. So there, I've I've said it. But the the, the sake, the Honjozo sake that I'm going to pick tonight is Hakushika, and that's from Nishinomiya. That's the brewery that I was just mentioning. It's just a brilliant sake. You can drink it uh, warm. You can drink it chilled. You can drink it room temperature. It pairs well with absolutely anything. It's exactly what you'd expect from a Nada brewery. It's light, but still kind of has a body to it, if that makes sense. It's smooth, clean. It, it's it's a taste that you never get tired of, which can be quite dangerous when it's when you consider it's sixteen percent alcohol. But that that would be my pick. But I have to say, it was very close with Kembishi's Kuramatsu. <laughs> Well, uh, I'm glad that it, you went that way because Kemishi uh, was my choice for a recommendation. Um, you know, I, I I wavered over that or Sawanoi, but I I think I I've actually recommended Sawanoi's Honjozo uh, before, or maybe you have. Anyway, I, I recommended uh, the Kimoto. Yeah, it's it, that it's, is also why I didn't bring bring up tonight. <laughs> yeah, it's just. It's 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 really hard for me to get away. Like um, like I said, Fukujua has some some fantastic stuff, but it's all relatively really quite modern. Uh, and I I do just prefer the tradition that Kembishi brings. And I'll be honest, like one of the biggest problems I had in choosing a recommendation tonight was which Kembishi to go with. Would I should I go for Kuramatsu? Should I go for Kiipon? Should I go for something like Mizuho? But you know, Kuramatsu is the one. Kuramatsu is the the sake that you can get. Uh, pretty much anywhere you are, if you're in Japan, uh, I I do believe they are starting to export it. You know, it's just this, it's the solid baseline for what I think sake in in the traditional sense is like it's the kind of thing that you can you can have every day with your dinner. Um, it's it's affordable. It's bulletproof. Uh, you can leave it outside on the shelf for as long as you want to leave it out. You can drink it cold you can drink at room temperature you can drink it warm maybe throw some ice in there in summer it's just uh it's a it's a good friend and uh that's that's why i think kuramatsu kenbishi is is a sake that everybody should try at least once so is that a first thing we have both recommended honjozo tonight there you go out of 10 all the way go take take us away with a takeaway so the takeaway would be this, NADA is clearly not a bioregion anymore. It's been, it's been decided by committee, it's changed numerous times over the years. And the things that you could argue made it a bioregion in the past, very few of them are actually still relevant today. But what it is, and what it continues to be is really the fulcrum of the 
the entire sake industry. If you look at it through history, the research and development to, to push forward the rest of the industry, it's, it's a perfect balancing act between tradition and modernity. You can go to somewhere like Kiku Masamuni and see how taru are made, and then you can go and try some of the really modern brands that, that are really pushing the boundaries. For example, they have a new futsushu out that's fruity and floral and elegant. So they are very important in that respect. They are not just cheap factory made futsushu, although the futsushu is very good anyway. So we need to look at Nada in a different context and look at it for, for what it is, which is a, a hugely diverse part of the sake industry and one that is really definitely a force for good rather than, than bad. Here, here. Thank you very much for that. All right. So you, you heard it, folks. Uh, don't sleep on Nada. There's so much good stuff coming out of there. And uh, that wraps us up for another Sake Deep Dive. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, we want to thank our Patreon supporters. We just had our uh, Sake Matsuri and some, some people came out and, and it was it was some good fun. And we, we really, really appreciate that. Uh, for those who are not Patreon sponsors, our Patreon is up. Patreon slash Sake Deep Dive, all one word. Uh, we have two tiers. The Ochoku level gets you access to extended show notes and... Uh, an invitation to our annual sake matsuri and the tokuri level gets you access to our very occasional sip episodes and uh yeah we really appreciate everybody's support um so i have been your host jim ryan you can find me at my website www.jimryan.com and uh, the occasional odd appearance on facebook and instagram uh andrew where can people find you on my website, www.originsaki.com, and from that, you can link to my Instagram. So, everybody out there, I hope you uh, stay safe and, and cool in this uh, crazy, crazy summer. Uh, keep your tokuri full, but drink responsibly, and uh, kanpai. Kanpai. Kanpai.